A reading from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. It's my privilege to bring the word of God to you today, but let's pray and then we'll jump into our passage. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this time of worship so far. We thank you that we can gather together. We thank you for your word that instructs us. Thank you for your word that provides us this example, this story of the faith of Abraham, but we thank you more so for who Abraham points us to, to Jesus Christ. Help us to see Jesus in this passage today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, my wife and I used to really enjoy watching the CBS show, The Amazing Race. And we haven't watched it in a while, so I don't know if anything's changed. But at least when we were watching it, the premise of the show was 10 to 12 teams of two each would go on a, a race, essentially, around the world. And they would start from Los Angeles, usually, and then they'd immediately head to the airport and get on a plane. The host would tell them that you're going to be flying to a certain place, and you're going to get there, and then you're going to have the first leg of your amazing race, your journey around the world. So they would head to the airport, arrive at their first location, and then they would do some task or some exercise, a game, a puzzle, uh, a number of these things, and then they would finish that leg of the race, and then they would rest and relax there somewhere in the city, and continue on to the next, the next leg of their journey. And all these teams were competing for, well, at least it started out at about $100,000. I think it's up to about a million-dollar prize now that, they, that they're all competing for uh, in, to be the amazing race winner, as long as they don't get eliminated for being the slowest team in any particular leg of the race. So the way these, these contestants work, or the way the race works, is they know they're going on a race around the world. They know they'll be traveling by airplane, boat, train, car, rickshaw, a bunch of different types of transportation that they get to uh, use. But they have no idea where they're going in each leg of the race until the host reveals it to them. They have no idea how they're going to get there. They have no idea what will be required of them when they get there. 
But these contestants, they all enter the amazing race. They've decided to put their faith and their trust in the producers and the host of the amazing race who will guide them, who will tell them where they are to go, who assures them that there will be enough food, drink, shelter for them when they arrive. But they have to, in faith, go. They have to set out trust and go to wherever the host directs them to go. He doesn't tell them, he doesn't give them a map. He just tells them, go here, and then you'll receive further instructions when you arrive there. This is how God commands Abraham. He says, go to this location that I will show you. Trust me. Go there, and I will give you a great reward. Go from your country and everything that's familiar to you and go to this place that I'll show you. Have faith in me, in my promises, and go. So let's look at the background and the setting of our passage. And I'm going to use the words both Abram and Abraham throughout, throughout the sermon. And if you don't know, Abram is the, is the former name of Abram. His name gets changed into Abraham later on in his life. But because we're jumping around, I might use them interchangeably. So following Noah's flood and the Tower of Babel, Notice how Moses, the author of Genesis, is going to slow way down here in chapter 12, and he's going to focus on one particular family, Abraham. The time period that we're talking is about 2000 BC, and in Genesis 11, the previous chapter, we read that Terah, Abraham's father, took Abram, Sarai, Abram's barren wife, and Lot, Terah's grandson, from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is modern-day Iraq, and he headed to the land of Canaan, but they stopped in Haran, which is modern-day southeastern Turkey, just across the border from Syria. They apparently settled in Haran, established their business, maybe built some houses, basically set up their lives in Haran. And then, unfortunately, Terah died in Haran. And so while Abram was in Haran, God again called to him. And we have no indication whether Abram was worshiping Yahweh or whether he was worshiping the gods of his fathers at this time. He was probably worshiping the pantheistic gods of his fathers, though. And out of the darkness, God speaks to Abraham and makes significant promises to him. If Abram will leave his country, his kindred, his father's house, and go to the land that God would show him. God promised him these great blessings. Now, assuming that God gives this command to Abram while he's still at Haran. God's calling Abram to leave his place, his house, his successful business, everything that he's known, and to travel about 400 miles from Haran to Shechem. Now, it's about 400 miles from here to Phoenix. I've done that drive a few times before. It's not a huge culture shock, of course. There's plenty of restaurants along the way to stop for food. No, this move of Abraham that God is calling him to do is, is more like moving from here to an obscure town in the Mexican Baja Peninsula, where he's going to go 400 miles, he's going to have a huge culture shock, a new language, a new job, a foreign land, everything away from what he has known. This is what God's calling him to do. He says, leave everything that you know and walk by faith and trust me. So I'd like to look at our passage and like to look at the saving faith of Abraham here in Genesis 12 through the lens of what some Reformed theologians have identified as the three elements of saving faith. The three elements of saving faith. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. 
which spells out cat, if you're keeping track, but with a K. So knowledge, assent, and trust. And these, th these three will lead to understanding, believing, and going. And through this study, I, I hope and I trust that we'll see how God reaches out in darkness to Abraham and graciously saves him, just as God reaches out to us, reviving us from our spiritual deadness and darkness and making us alive in Christ Jesus. So let's jump into our passage. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Moses records here, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God reveals a certain knowledge to Abraham that leads to Abraham's understanding of these promises of God here. Remember, God speaks out of nowhere to Abram here. He commands him to leave his country, his family, his father, to go to some unknown land that God had yet to show him. It's as if God says, go forth with closed eyes until you're far enough away from your land and your people and everything familiar in which you might trust. And then, only then, will I show you where you're going. God challenges Abraham to give up the normal customary source of, of personal identity in those days, his family and his country, and to go forth in faith and trust in God. And in exchange, God makes a huge promise to him. He promises to make Abram a great nation, remember, with a barren wife. God promises to bless those who bless God, Abram, to curse those who curse Abram. And he promises that all the families of earth will be blessed through Abram. That's a pretty good promise. That's a pretty good promise if you know the one making the promise, or more specifically here, the one making the covenant. We can refer to this portion as well as other parts of Abraham's life by the title, an Abrahamic covenant. God makes a covenant here with Abraham. And the type of covenant that he makes here is sometimes referred to as a suzerain vassal covenant. And it's a covenant that comes from a superior to an inferior, from God the king to Abraham his vassal or his servant. There's three promises made here by the suzerain king God. He says a great nation, a blessing to the nations, and land. And there's a requirement here of the vassal or really an expectation that God has, an expectation that Abram as the, as the vassal as the servant, will loyally obey his king. And because Abraham does loyally obey his king, he's identified as the covenantal representative for a people, the people of faith. The New Testament authors pick up on this covenantal representative idea. Both Peter and Paul pick up on this. Peter in Acts 3, 25 and 26 says, that we are blessed as sons of Abraham, recipients of the Abrahamic covenant, because God raised up his servant Jesus and blessed us through his life, death, and resurrection. And Paul also picks up on this in Galatians 3, 8, and 9, where he says that God preached the gospel to Abraham when he said, in you shall all the nations be blessed. 
And we are blessed and justified by faith along with Abraham, the man of faith, by and through Jesus. You see, Abraham is our covenantal representative. He is the covenantal representative of the people of faith, of the family of the faithful. We are blessed by and through Abraham, by and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, although God in our passage seemingly provided Abraham with minimal information, Abraham understood God's revelation. And as we'll see shortly, Abraham also believed and he went. But we have so much more information, so much more knowledge than Abraham revealed through the word of God and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So what's the knowledge that God has revealed to us today for our understanding? Well, most importantly, he hasn't left us in the dark, but he's given us his holy word. Paul reminds us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. God has given us his word today, his full and complete word, providing us everything that we need to know about him. He's given us the knowledge of sin, righteousness, and judgment through his revealed word. In Galatians 3 that we read a few minutes ago, verses 10 to 14 also go on to explain that all of us are under a curse, having failed to do the things written in the Bible and commanded by God. And as cursed people, we're all deserving of Punishment of spiritual death, of God's wrath, of eternal hell. No one is justified before God by the law because no one's kept the law. No one except for Jesus Christ, who lived that perfect life of faith and obedience, who died for our sins, who rose again to prove his power over sin and death. And Paul goes on to explain that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, and that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles. And Paul concludes that chapter, chapter 3 of Galatians, by writing that if we're in Christ, we are Abraham's offsprings, offspring, heirs, according to promise. So what hard or difficult truths is God revealing to you today in his word? What knowledge do you need to better understand the promises of God from the Bible? How have you seen God at work in your life in His fulfillment of His promises to you? And how can you share that knowledge with others? Now, Abraham doesn't just hear this information from God and continue on his way. No, he understands the promises of God and then he a sense leading him to believing the promises of God. The next prong in the element of, of saving faith is the assent that leads to believing the promises of God, the mental assent to the truth of the information. So we read again in our passage, verses 4 and the first part of 5. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Abram demonstrates his assent or his belief in this passage by preparing for this move. 
by packing the moving van, packing up everything that he has and going. 75-year-old Abram gathers his wife, his nephew, his many great possessions, and he prepares for that journey, that 400-mile journey to Canaan. He believes the promises of God and goes to this new land, this new people, this new culture, basically a whole new life for him and his family. Now, the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, defines faith as, quote, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, certainly that was the status of Abraham. He was assured of the things that he hoped for, the things that he hoped to receive from God. He was convicted and convinced that God would deliver those things and eventually would provide those things, even if he could not see them in his lifetime. John Owen, the Puritan theologian, describes Abram's faith here as a divine, supernatural, justifying, and saving faith, which faith is not of ourselves, but God's work from above. God graciously grants to Abraham the faith to believe the grand promises that God was making to him. You know, sometimes the information or the knowledge that we that we receive can seem unbelievable, a leap too far, requiring too much faith. And we see a story like this in Mark 9, 14 through 29. The disciples are confronted by a desperate father who brings his demon-possessed son that makes the child mute, unable to speak. And for certain reasons, the disciples are not able to cast out the demon. So when Jesus arrives... There's a crowd gathered around, and the father shouts through the crowd that the disciples were not able to cast out the demon, and he begs Jesus to cast out the, the demon. He says that the demon seizes the boy, throws him down, causes him to foam and grind his teeth and become rigid. You can almost hear the, the desperation in the father's plea to Jesus, please save my son. And at Jesus' command, they, they bring the boy and his father forward. Jesus inquires further of the boy's father how long this has been happening. You can almost imagine the father at this point growing anxious and saying, please just save my son, no more questions. But the father dutifully answers the question of Jesus and he, he says that uh, the uh, child has been possessed since childhood and the demon has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And then immediately, immediately the father of the child cries out and says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus rebukes the demon who comes out of the boy and who's freed from his terrible condition. So often that, that is the cry of, of us in our walk of faith, right? I believe, help my unbelief, Lord. I believe your promises. Help my unbelief. I know and understand what you've commanded, Lord. Help my unbelief. You know, when we're studying Abraham, we can be tempted into thinking that Abraham never had any issues sometimes with assent or belief, that he put up no objection, that he put up no question to God. Well, that's reading 
scriptural silence. That's reading into it. And we're, we're more often like the demon-possessed child crying out, I believe. I'm the, demon, uh, the father of the demon-possessed boy crying out, I believe. Help my unbelief. Like Abraham, we can look forward to the future fulfillment of God's promises, trusting that he will fulfill those promises, even if not in our lifetimes. We may not see the fulfillment of all that God has promised us. We may never understand all the ways that God works all things for his plan and our good, for his glory. We may not understand what God is doing in this world, but we know that God has given us a promise. God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 46.10 So in what areas do we need to believe more deeply in the promises of God? In what ways perhaps is God challenging you through His Word or through a Christian brother or sister to embrace Christ more deeply? Do you believe and rest in the promise that Quote, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In what ways do you simply need to cry out to God, I believe, help my unbelief. We can cry out, we can rest in the promise from 2 Timothy 1.9 where God says, where it says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus, before the ages began. God calls. God graciously saves in Christ. We can believe. We can trust our good and gracious God. So after the knowledge that leads to the understanding of the promises of God, and after the assent that leads to believing the promises of God, the final element of saving faith is trust that leads to going in the promises of God. Now it's interesting in this chapter, chapter 12 that we're looking at, that we don't have any of the recorded words of Abram. In fact, we don't get any of the recorded words of Abram until later in Genesis when he decides in fear to sin and to not trust God. Now here, Moses records only that Abram obeyed God and went to the land that God showed him. Abram obeyed God with his actions. We finish out our passage here in verse 5 through 8. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham trusts in God. He goes from his country, his kindred, his father's house to the land that God was to show him. Abraham trusts God implicitly. He removes all human support and he trusts that God will give him rest in the land that God will make him into a great nation despite having no children at the time. He trusts that God will make Abraham's name great in contrast to the failed aspirations of the builders of the Tower of Babel in the previous chapter. Despite living in a land that wasn't his own, 
the Lord graciously appears here to Abram and promises him the land. And Abram, in response, twice in this chapter, twice in this passage, builds an altar to the Lord and worships him, not having received the promises yet. Abraham so trusts God that he worships and glorifies him without any fulfillment of the promise other than a safe journey to Canaan. The author of Hebrews summarizes this episode in Abraham's life with this passage from chapter 11, starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We're reminded of the truth by the author of Hebrews that Abraham obeyed God by faith. He was looking forward to a future land of promise, a city built by God, a place of eternal rest. Hebrews tells us that Abraham lived in tents during his life, but he knew that God was faithful and would fulfill the promise. R.C. Sproul helpfully writes about this trust when he says that the affection of saving faith will lead the believer to see, embrace, and acquiesce in the sweetness and loveliness of Christ. Or put another way by the famous Dutch theologian Louis Burkhoff, he says, this saving faith will lead to a personal trust in and surrender to Christ as Savior and Lord and as the source of pardon and of spiritual life. The prophet Jeremiah presents similar words from the Lord regarding uh, the curse and the blessing when we trust in the Lord. Jeremiah writes in chapter 17, verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But then see the contrast that Jeremiah brings up here. In verse 7, he says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. God presents this as a blessing for those that trust him and a curse for those who don't trust him. In the same way as Abraham, God calls us to leave behind our former way of life, our sins, and to turn and to follow God. John Calvin hopefully, helpfully described this command from God to Abraham in this way. He says, God does not take a cruel pleasure in the trouble of his servants, but he thus tries all our affections that he may not leave any lurking places undiscovered in our hearts, any places that are less than completely dedicated to God. So what are those lurking places undiscovered in our hearts? What are the areas of our life that we haven't fully turned over to God? What are the temptations or the sins that perhaps you're holding on to? In what way do you need to turn your back and go as Abraham did? 
Saving faith, trusting in God, will lead to an obedience in Christ, will lead to good works, will lead to sanctification, will lead to a life lived in faith and trust in Him. Sometimes there's um, a temptation to read passages like this in a way that says we should just be like Abraham. But Abraham is just a lens. He's just a vessel for us to see the greater Abraham, to see the Lord Jesus Christ. After the author of Hebrews concludes his famous hall of faith in chapter 11, he begins chapter 12 by pointing us to the object of faith for all the men and women of chapter 11. He says, Jesus is who they were pointing to. The author writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The life of Abraham, the life lived by faith, is a life that points us to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the one who lived and died and rose again, the object of our faith, the giver of the free gift of eternal life. So trust in Jesus, just as Abraham looked forward to his Savior, walking by faith, even in the things that he could not see or were not delivered to him in his lifetime. I think this idea is, is summarized so well, the idea of saving faith, the knowledge and belief and trust, and something that David, King David, tells his son Solomon shortly before his death. King David says, And you, Solomon, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Know the promises of the Lord. Believe the promises of the Lord. Trust the promises of the Lord. So like I mentioned, the uh, amazing race show consists of 10 to 12 teams in a race around the world. And it's truly a race, meaning that there are winning teams and losing teams. And on certain legs, uh, the losing team, the team that, that uh, arrives last, gets quote-unquote sent home. But I found out recently the losing team is not actually sent home when they lose. No, they're sent to the final destination of the amazing race, where they can just rest and relax and enjoy life in a tropical location for a little while. And then on the last leg of the race, the teams that are still racing, the two to three teams, uh, they're all racing to this final location where the losing teams are there to congratulate and to celebrate the winning team that crosses the finish line. And then as I understand it, all the teams get to rest and relax in that tropical location for a while. So this is what God has told us to do. God is. God has called us to understand, believe, and go in his promises, to obediently, faithfully, trustfully run the race that's set out before us, going wherever he sends us in the race. We'll one day pass from one degree of glory to the next to the eternal rest in heaven. Some will run a, a long race. Some will run a short race. But each of us must run this amazing race of faith like Abraham, looking to the founder and the perfecter of our faith who conquered death 
and promises us eternal life, looking to the future fulfillment of God's promises in faith, just like Abraham did, looking forward to that future fulfillment that he's promised, that future rest, when we conclude the amazing race of faith. So run the race of faith, looking to Jesus, the author, perfecter, and founder of our faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the life of Abraham. Thank you for his faithfulness, his example, his looking forward to you, his trust in you. We thank you for the way that Abraham looked forward even beyond his lifetime to his Savior, to Jesus Christ. We thank you for the way that we are heirs, that we are blessed by the faithfulness of Abraham. And we thank you more so for the way that we're blessed by the greater Abraham, by Jesus, the one who came, who came and lived, who died and rose again, the one who calls us in faith to follow him. Please help each of us to follow Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.